Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change power and success in the world. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory there is no survival. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. From my point of view, building a business, uh, growing something, making something, employing a lot of people, having a, a company where people love to work for you. I had a guy bring me today and he's worked for two other companies that I know and he knows. And he said, I want to work for you for less money. He said, because everyone I talk to says Harvey Norman's a better company to work for. You look after your people. That's Jerry Harvey talking about the magic of Harvey Norman. Hello and welcome to this very special two-part series of No Limitations. In part B of this episode, I start by asking Jerry Harvey about the business model. So sit back and enjoy this very engaging conversation, Fear, What is Fear? What I worked out very early in life, because I was a commission salesman, figured that when you're a commission salesman, you work a bit harder and you're going to earn a bit more money. Pretty simple stuff. So when I had my first shop, I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll pay someone a low wage but pay them a big incentive. So at the time, I think we were paying them, when we first opened, £10 a week and then 20% of the profits, whatever they made. So over the years, with all the people around me, it came down to 15%, 10%, 5%, and 2.5%. And the wage went up and the incentive came down. So then I thought, that's not the way I wanted it to happen. But you're employing a lot of people, and you've got a, they've got a say, and you've got a little board, and you've got your executives, and... You're trying to make more money and build the business. So over the years, I was I succumbed to their ideas. Then when I started again as Harvey Norman, I said, I want to give people a greater incentive to make money. Mm-hmm. You know, over the years, we've had people working for us and make half a million a year, a million a year, a million and a half. We've even had people over a million up and two million. So, uh, and there's a platform within Harvey Norman. If you start a business up and build it within our framework, yeah. then you can walk away with... A lot of money. One bloke I know, we built it and sold it for $25 million. He got 12, 12 and a half and so did we. Okay. But within our framework, you can do that. Yep. So I can give you lots of examples of it, uh, of people within our business building their own little empires, if you like, mini Harvey Normans. And, and so if you're in, in Harvey Norman and you're of that ilk where you can grow the business or bolt something onto it that grows it, then you benefit a lot, but so do we. So we encourage that sort of thing. If you go to work for a company like that, that encourages you and you're good at what you you, then you can make a lot more money than working for someone else. So then you're really looking after your good people 
And the people that haven't got that ability, well, then they've got to go back and do something else. So our business is really very much driven, you know, by, you know, allowing people to make a lot more money than they would make working for the opposition. Now, we've done that all across the world and, and it's working. So now, you know, we go to Slovenia and the Austrians and the Germans can be difficult to work for. Like the guy from Aldi, when he first came out here to run Aldi, he wanted to talk to me. So he came into the office and he was dressed in a suit, immaculate. And he walked in and I was dressed like I normally, hopeless. And he looked at me and I had my shoes off. He said, I don't believe this. He said, I've come in to see you. Your, your office is a mess. You look ordinary. And I'm dressed to the... He said, in Germany, you could never do that. I said, well, it's not Germany, mate. He said, I never want to leave Australia. He said, I want to be like you. <laughs> right? But in Germany, you wouldn't go to work. Or Austria, you wouldn't go to work. In America, you watch the Americans. They stand in front of the mirror and they do their hair. For a long time, right? and they get the suntan, and the tie is immaculate, the latest shirt with the cufflinks, everything's spot on. And if you don't look like that, you ain't going to make it. You get people like Singleton and Harvey, who go the other way completely. We go in our pyjamas <laughs> to work, right? Because we, we don't think you have to look good, we just think you have to be good. You'll know yourself, you'll, you'll go and meet someone. You'll have a preconceived idea about them or something. But after talking to them for half an hour or an hour, you'll then decide whether you think they're good or not. And it won't have anything to do with how they're dressed or whether they're pretty or ugly or female or male or whatever they are. So you'll decide then whether you like them after you've had a, an hour or so of, you know, talking to them. And you'll say, I like this guy or I... The other day on that social media, one of the things that came back to me, a woman said, it was when I did the Alan Jones show and talking about boards and that sort of thing. She said, I can't stand that man. She's talking about me. But on this one, I'm on his side. And I thought, that's nice, isn't it? So on that one there, there were about 800 replies on social, and they were all positive. Okay. And I said, give me a list of the 800. So I can look at it because every other list I've ever had, it's 800 and they're all bad. This is 800 and they're all good. What's gone wrong? So, but it was Alan Jones and his audience. So I suppose, you know, that had something to do with it. One guy wrote me a letter. He's a lawyer from Melbourne. And, you know, he was never going to buy at Harvey Norman again. And Alan Jones um, was terrible to women, misogyny. And so I read it and I thought, oh, this bloke's a lawyer. He must be smarter than this. So I rang him. Oh, he said, I didn't expect you to ring me. I said, mate, I've just read your letter. I said, so you, you feel pretty strongly about this, don't you? He said, yeah. I said, you know Alan Jones? No. So I said, I'll, I'll tell you the other side of Alan Jones, some of the good things he does, you know, like helping people and giving a lot of money away and doing things for nothing and, yeah, and over a long period of time. So even if you don't, agree with everything he does. You've got to agree with the other, whether you like it or not. Oh, I didn't know that. I said, so, well, there you know now. <laughs> and so I thought I'd got him turned over. And then a week later, I get another letter from him. But some of those people, you can't turn around. He was what I thought I turned around a little bit. 
But they get on the bandwagon. And he doesn't know Alan Jones, but he never wants anyone there to advertise with the bloke. He hates him, and this bloke hates women. I had to point out to him he hates a lot of blokes too. But he loves a lot of blokes and he loves a lot of women. He doesn't do it because she's a woman or she's black or she's Chinese or whatever it is. He, he just has a – he attacks a lot of people. That's the way he lives. And, but he supports a lot of people. So you can love him today and love him tomorrow and hate him the next day. That's Alan Jones. But he, he gets this huge audience and it stays there. The guy's nearly 80 and he's got this huge audience. So they don't have to listen to him. But they do, and we advertise on it because he's got an audience. I'm not going to advertise on some program where they've got an audience. So Alan Jones uh, is, is a you know, like I've watched him over the years and I think, well, who do I know that knows as much about music, sport, the English language, politics, business? I don't know anyone that's got anything like his capacity so whatever you think about him, you've got to look back and say, holy hell, this bloke's like, he's a walking bloody encyclopedia. He's like, his knowledge of so many things. I've said to him, how do you know that so-and-so made so many runs in the test match in such and such? And then he tells you about the swimming at the Olympic Games or something like that. And I wouldn't, no one can, can have this much knowledge. And, and tell me someone that's got as much knowledge as he has across the board. So regardless of whether I think he's a good guy or a bad guy, I can't do anything else but admire him because of his huge ability and his huge mental brain. But can I ask you something, Jerry? A lot of people admire you as, as, as an outstanding, as you said, entrepreneur and retailer. But you made a comment earlier. You said um, the department stores shouldn't be at their, their death row. So if you had your magic dust, what would you do to the, the David Jones and the Myers? How would, how would that turn around? See, over the years, when I talk to suppliers, I've very rarely ever found a supplier that I talk to that says anything good in the last 40 years about David Jones or Myers. And so that tells you straight away there's a big problem because I, I drill it into our people that our suppliers are our partners and, and that we, at no stage do we treat them as anything else other than a partner. So if I see a supplier sitting there coming into a Harvey Norman head office or wherever to see one of our people, and he sat there for half an hour or something, I'd go in and I'd grab the bloke that he'd come to see. i said, mate, why have you kept this bloke waiting half an hour? Right? You've got to have a real good reason. I would never do that to anyone. And it's not going to work when you do this. And so, um, you know... It's pretty obvious. I shouldn't even have to have that conversation. But when you get all those suppliers over all of those years and you ask them, how does it work with David Jones and Myers? And they nearly all say it's always difficult and they don't run it properly and I'm not happy with the way they sell my merchandise. So that's been going on for 40 or 50 years. Now, occasionally it changes, but mostly that's, that's a story that never changes. So the first thing I do is, is make a partnership with all my suppliers, work together. What are we doing selling shirts or dresses or shoes or cosmetics or whatever we're selling? We're a partnership and we've got to work out how to sell more than the next bloke. 
And so then we need really good staff on the floors. Uh, we need very good merchandising and we need very good supplier relationships. And it, it's not a simple fact. A lot of buyers go out and they want to belt the supplier. And so they've done a good day's work when they bought it at a real cheap price and the supplier's made nothing. No, put them into the ground. And so uh, he's a good buyer. I don't want that sort of buyer working for me. I want the bloke working for me that, that is going to build a relationship with that supplier. So over the years, if one of my opposition ever came up with some good deal in the newspaper or television or something, I'd say, holy shit, he got it before me. And then I get onto all my blokes, right? And I say, how the hell did that happen, right? How did they get that? Why didn't we? Is their relationship better with that supplier? That's the one thing I'd go off about whenever I'd see it and say, you know, we can't ever let that happen again. We want to be the bloke that they want to deal with more than the other bloke. So you have to have a relationship. Relationships are very important. So we want to have a good relationship with, with all our suppliers, but not only that, with all our media. We work on the fact that we want to be friends with everyone for our mutual benefit. And, and, and if that isn't common sense and people don't get that, how couldn't they get that? I, there's so many things in business that are just plain, simple and common sense. And then you see people doing the opposite and you can't, you can't but they all mostly go broke or they never make any money. Are they going for the quick buck or what are they? Because you're in it for the long play, like you said. Well, we're talking about individuals and egos. And, and so if you've got a bad boss, I've got another thing. When I talk to people over the years... I say to people, how many good bosses have you had in your life? Most people will come up between one and two. Very few go past two. Uh, and then you go, how many bosses have you had? And they go through them all. I'm not saying that you loved your boss. A good boss. You know, he, was, he was, or she was somebody that you thought did their job very well and you could look up to them doing that job. That's a good boss. Yeah. And, and so... Most people can't give you very many. So that tells you straight away, most bosses in the world are not very good. So if you're a good boss, right, you've got a huge start. And the number of people that have come to work for us over the years because uh, they didn't like the company they were working for. And, and, but that doesn't matter whether you're in manufacturing or retail or the media, whatever you're in. You've got to have good bosses. And, and, and it's... It's very important. How do you describe yourself as a leader, Jerry? Are you the brains trust? Are you the innovator? Are you the motivator? Are you all the above? I always take this view that I don't think I'm any smarter than anyone else, really. Um, a lot of people smarter than me. Uh, but opportunities walk past you every day, all of us. But very few of us grab that opportunity. And so some people... So whenever an opportunity is grabbed, I look at it and I think, who the hell grabbed that, right? So I immediately have some respect if I think, I could have got that. He got it. You've got to have the ability to see an opportunity and to, and to grasp it. And so I guess I've got to, I'm talking about this across the whole spectrum, but my specialty is retail. So, you know, I'd like to think that I've grasped the opportunities in retail ahead of anyone else in retail in Australia, in my opinion, um, because I've built a business from scratch twice 
you know, most of my opposition over all those years went out of business. So, and I've looked at all those businesses. I've worked out, I've worked out in my 20s how many businesses there were in the last 100 years in Australia and how many were still there. So if you, when I'm a young bloke, when I'm in my 20s, I'm looking at all the people that were there and I could go through all their names, but like... uh, Beber Falls and Sydney Snows, and you've never heard of all these people, but I could go off with 50 of them. They're all gone. So why did they all go? Like Mick Simmons used to yeah, own that's the, right. the, 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 the sporting business and that sort of thing. So, um, And the hardware shops were owned by um, BBC, and now it's all owned by Bunnings. And, and so over the years what happened was the bosses disappeared but the employees all went and worked for the new guy. So the employees didn't change. It was only the bosses. So why did they all go broke? So, you know, that I'd be asking that question. Why did they go broke? So, and it was pretty easy to work out why they went broke. They just lost interest, didn't want to come to work, made enough money, uh, lost their energy level, lost their ambition. Um, and, and let other people run it and, and decided that they'd have a boat or a plane or a, whatever they'd have, racehorse. They just let their business go. So I said to myself, if that ever happens to me, I'm going to hand a badge in the next day. I'm not going to stand there and wait. So I always look around and I think, who's out there that's really good? Who have I got to worry about? Now, there's a couple of blokes that do a pretty good job. But I'm not looking out there at any of them and thinking they're going to beat me. You know, I, I haven't got anyone out there at the moment that I look at them doing what I'm doing and think to myself they're going to get me. I haven't got anyone. I reckon I'm ahead or ahead of the crowd. Most of the things we've done over the years, others have copied. Yep. You know, you've got a situation with electrical retailing in Australia at the moment where you've got three main players or two really, Good Guys and and, and JB Hi-Fi, which is one outfit. And, and Harvey Norman, which is another outfit. Now, that's a really big percentage of the market with two players. And I look around and I think, is there another player coming along? Uh, can't see him. Uh, Amazon. Well, I was going to say, what about that non-bricks and mortar? Amazon. So then everyone decided three or four or five years ago that Amazon was going to bury all the retailers. And so... What you were know, you thinking then? Oh, I thought they'd be a nuisance, but I, I, I knew they couldn't bury us. Um, and, and so I knew that you had to always have retail shops. You can't sell everything online, especially furniture and bedding and electrical. And we've got a very big online business. Uh, and we do online as well as Amazon or anyone else. So uh, better, in fact, because we've got stores where we can deliver same day and next day. Amazon can't do that. They can do it in where they've got a warehouse, but not where they haven't got a warehouse. If you want to, it's, only, you, it's only early days, Jerry. Well, they've got a warehouse in Melbourne, say, and they've got to deliver all over Australia from there. So the guy in Dubbo, I'll get a fridge from the warehouse in Melbourne into Dubbo, and he comes into my shop and I say, mate, I wouldn't do that if I were you. It might arrive damaged. If something goes wrong, how are you going to get it back to them? I'll sell it to you at the same price. Why don't you buy it off me? And guess what happens? He buys it off me. Mad if he doesn't. 100%. Is the art of retail change much? 
No, the, the biggest problem was re- retail is basic. It's buying and selling. So you've got to know how to buy something that you can sell. What about this whole thing about analytics? Overdone? Oh. Or is it more gut no, feel? No, it's all overdone. But, but there's, there's, there's all these new things that come along. But at the end of the day, the basic is still the same. And, and if I go out and buy a 1,000 lounges and, and I bought the wrong ones, I'm not going to sell the damn things. I've got to have the ability to be able to buy something so at a very early age, I found out that I could, I could look at any product. It didn't matter whether it was a motor car or a tractor um, or, a, or a bed. I could look at it and I could figure out about what it cost and about what I could sell it for. And I thought, I can do that just about as well as anyone. Yeah, right. And, and so it doesn't matter what the product is. And a cow or a horse, it doesn't matter. You look at it and you think, I can buy it for that and I can sell it for that. And, and so that's trading. Yeah, it is. And for me, for me, I'm thinking, what would I really like to be? Horse trader. That would do me. What do you do for a living? Horse trader, right? And, and so if you went out with me tomorrow and bought a horse for $10,000. I'll come with you. And then it had a foal and we sold the Foal for forty-five thousand dollars. Then we put the mare in foal, sold it for one hundred and forty-five thousand dollars. You'd say, "Mate, can we do that again?" <laughs> right? That was bloody terrific. That's horse trading. Now I don't know anyone that wouldn't be happy with that, but no, no one has a go at it much because it's bloody hard to do. But the guys that do it, the horse traders that I know, and I know them all. Uh, I know the amount of joy they get out of doing that. They're horse traders. So what's the love of the horses for you? Is it the actual animal itself watching the run or is it the actual the trade? I think it's more the trade. Yeah, really? Right. So when I, when I talk to Singleton, my partner, or Rob Ferguson, my partner, so Rob loves to gamble and he loves the breeding. Singo loves to gamble. Breeding, okay. Loves to gamble, loves to race. What do I love to do? So I go to the horse sales and I'm there selling. Singleton and Ferguson are not selling, oh, right? right? Okay. They'll be sitting in having Ferguson a cup of tea and Singleton a beer, right? <laughs> so, you know, they won't go out. And I said, come out and talk to your, to your buyers. No, I don't want to. I've got others out there doing that. They don't want to do that, but I do. So I want to be talking. Every horse sale I go to, I'm out there talking to every trainer, every buyer. And, you know, I do it. I love that physical relationship, the communicating with those people. And, but they don't. But then they do other things better than me. So that, but what we're talking about here is just what part of the business attracts you and what part of the business attracts the other guy. So the business is there and it's got many facets and it can attract people for different reasons. And that makes it interesting because in the horse business, you're talking to people from all walks of life. Mm. So I'm selling a horse for $2,000. And the next person I talk to is two million, right? It's a different horse, but, but I enjoyed the chat with the two thousand buck just the buyer because I know he's a struggler. I know he's trying to get a champion, just like the guy at two million. You just think, in a way, I hope his two thousand dollar horse is better than the two million, because like there was a horse called Alligator Blood one on Saturday. I sold it for fifty five thousand dollars. The bloke's over the moon. The horse that ran third cost two point two million, right? My horse is a lot better than the horse that ran third. So, 
you know, when you see that, and then I ring the bloke and talk to him, he said, oh, mate, you know. So you get these relationships and you, and it's nice when you have a relationship with somebody where you're both happy, as opposed, like the supplier. We've, I've just bought all those fridges off you, 10,000 fridges, I sold them in a week. Everyone's happy. We're all happy. We're going to have a beer and salute each other. So, you know, that adrenaline flow that you get, if you can get that in your workplace, gives you the energy to, and makes life interesting. Jerry, I wouldn't be doing the right thing if I didn't ask you from your perspective. What's the state of the economy? Um, the economy is in an interesting place because when interest rates were 17 and 18 and 20%, you talk to people and they'd say, you'll never see interest rates below 10% again. And then we got to a situation as the years went by where I don't know, the last 20 years, interest rates in Japan have been zero. And you look at that and you think, wow, and you talk to people and, oh, Japan's in trouble, and then I go to Japan and I look around, everyone's having a good feed, they've got a nice car, they live in a nice house, they dress well. Japan's not in trouble. What are they talking about? And then in Europe and America, UK, interest rates, zero. Australia, not zero. We're... Three, four, five, six percent. How's this work? Iron ore and coal. Take iron ore and coal out of it. We're exactly where they are. Now, here we are, 2019. And we're now in the same situation as the rest of those other countries, the advanced economies of the world. Asia, even in Asia, Singapore, interest rates are close to zero. You know, you can buy a house over there. Oh, if you're a Singaporean, for, for $10 million, right? And it costs you $130,000 a year in interest and you rent it for three hundred grand a year. So why don't you buy it? <laughs> a lot of people do. So we're now going to zero interest rates. Then they started about talking about quantitative easing. And a few years ago, I thought, what's quantitative easing? So then you find out what that is. Oh, we're not doing that here. No one ever talks about it. Now, in the last six months, they're talking about quantitative easing. So now not only are interest rates heading towards zero, and every economist and every banker doesn't get it. They, 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 they don't know how it works. Because it's only a year ago, December 18, I think it was, where the Reserve Bank said, next step in interest rates up. Right. Completely wrong. But they believe that, and these are the smartest men in the country. They can't get it. The fact is that we're coming down to zero and it looks like we're going to go into quantitative easing. So how's your economy going? Now, just coming back from Ireland, their GDP's more than double ours. Ireland's on fire now. So, and we're battling. We can't get growth. But America can't get growth. UK can't get growth. Europe can't get growth. So we're, we're in a place we've never been before. So as far back as I can remember as a 15-year-old kid, the lowest interest rate I can remember was 3% or something. So you'd buy a house in those days, difficult to get a loan, and, and they talk about difficulty of buying houses now, but in those days when I was a 15-year-old, the next-door neighbour had a kid, married someone, and they bought a house. And everyone was going, how lucky they were to be able to buy a house because it was hard to get and lend the money, and mostly you could only get it from banks. It wasn't from building societies. There were no mortgage brokers around and all that sort of thing. So 
So anyway, now that's where we're heading at the moment. I don't think there's any possibility that it's going to be anything else. So then you, the economy is going to chugger along okay because you're still going to have fairly full employment. You won't have much in the way of wage rises. Um, you look at Australia and we've got the highest minimum wages in the world. So in a lot of ways you think to yourself, we can't afford to be out of sync. So they're saying inflation should jump back to 2 or 3%, interest rates go to 3, 4, 5. Then we'd exacerbate the thing even worse because our wages would go up again and be more uncompetitive with the rest of the world. So if you really want to take a long-term view, you should be looking at it and saying, we've got to suffer some pain because in 10 or 20 years it'll be a lot worse if we don't now. I haven't heard anyone throw that line out yet, but it's my line at the moment. I can't see how I'm wrong because, you know, when you've got minimum wages and the rest of the world way below what we are, how can we compete with the rest of the world? The answer is we only do because we've got coal and iron ore. If we didn't have that, like we go back to the Banana Republic of Paul Keating. So then we'll be in real trouble. It doesn't look like iron ore and coal are going to decrease that much. So um, so the state of the economy, I think, is, is that we're going to have zero interest rates, we're going to have quantitative easing, and we're going to be on a par with those other countries I've been talking about, but we will still survive very well because most people will be employed, most people will have a job, and so the economy will chug along okay. Are you impressed with um, both sides of um, the House of Politics? Politics has reached a difficult stage in Australia and the rest of the world. Um, you've got strange people. Donald Trump's a strange man. You've got Boris Johnson. He's a strange man. Um, and, and you've got the bloke on the Labor Party. He's even stranger. So you've got these strange individuals because people are, are looking out there for some saviour. And so instead of going to the regular line of people, they go out there on a limb to these, these very strange people. And, and, and you can't believe that, that these people are running the biggest countries in the world. And, but they are. And, and, and so... Um, what about close to home? Well, here you've got... The problem here is you can't do anything. You've got, you've got two political parties and you've got a whole heap of little parties and you can't get any legislation through. And, and the amount of time it takes to get anything sensible through, and then you don't do a lot of the sensible things because, because it's unpopular and because it's unpopular then you don't do it. So the amount of money wasted on the meetings, the politics the regulators, it's just like, holy hell. And then you look at China and you think maybe, and I think people say, you know, what about China? It's a threat. And in my wildest thoughts, I think maybe China should take us over. It might be better. Right? An authoritarian government, right, and we make quick decisions. We'll build that road or build that school or do that or build that dam. Like in Australia, we've got this huge problem now. We haven't built a dam for 40 years. If it, I had it my way, we wouldn't have spent $60 billion on the NBN. We'd have spent it on water. And, and so we've spent nothing on those things because over the years, the bush 
has become less important. The city's become more and more important. And we've the bush doesn't count because there's no one lives there. And and so we won't look after them. It doesn't matter. And now you look at it 40 years later, you say, well, shit, we better look after the poor buggers. They're all dying. So, and they've got no water. So now we'll do something, maybe. I mean, I built a dam on one of my properties 40 years ago at Armadale. It's a 150-acre dam. They let me build it at the time. Now, in Armadale, I've got black swans on it. I've got um, breeding there. I've even got other, a lot of bird species and things. And <laughs> it's wonderful. They wouldn't let me build it now. But if I went and pulled it down now, I'd have every greenie in the country there saying you can't pull it down. So I'm, I'm thinking to myself, isn't that strange? Because they look at it now and say, you'll lose the swans. Can anyone believe that I breed swans at Armadale? You can't. How the hell does the black swan get to Armadale? There's no other place in Armadale where it is. And then over the years, I'm, I've grown all these trees there. And you go there, I've grown more trees in Armadale than anyone's ever done. And, you know, oaks and elms and aces and all sorts of trees. They're all irrigated from my dam. I'm making that countryside wonderful. But if I want to do it on the property next door, they won't let me. So how do you get, how do you change that thinking? Because they won't let me do it. Now they won't let me pull it down, but now I can't build another one. But so a man in your position, do you get a lot of hearing by cabinet ministers? No. The wonderful thing about politicians over the years is that when they're a politician, they're a minister, they're happy to know you, just, right? Before they're a minister, they can't, you can't get rid of them. And then after they're a minister and they come out of politics, you can't get rid of them. So then they're really your best mates. Huh? So, so it's strange because all, over all those years, whenever I've suggested to any politician anything, I can't ever think of one thing, and I've met every prime minister and half the ministers over all the years, and they're all good blokes, good women. Anything I've ever suggested, I don't ever recall one thing that's ever been done. Uh, like when I was going on about overseas 10 years ago, I was going on about overseas imports coming in. I'm saying there's drugs coming in. There's guns coming in through the post. Um, people don't pay any GST. Well, you got that battle up, didn't you? I had every media. I had every analyst. I had just about everyone in this country against me. I didn't have anyone on side 10 years ago. Now, in the last two or three years, I've got nearly everyone on side. They've changed their mind because they've realised that these people were sending it in, right? They don't employ anyone here. They don't pay any taxes here. Um, and, and they send the people broke or make it difficult for people in business here. Why couldn't people see that 10 years ago? The government, the Labor Party was in, wouldn't do anything about it. The Liberal Party came in, wouldn't do anything about it. And then all the interested parties were lobbying, lobbyists, how good are they? And, and so then Malcolm Fraser, not Fraser, Turnbull, Malcolm Turnbull, he was going to bring it in. They lobbied him and he put it off for another year. I thought, how did they get him? He can't be that silly. But somehow or other, he was so concerned about the vote, he'd lose a few votes. So I won't do it, I'll put it off for another year. And he did. And now it's so. Then they worked out it was as simple as all they had to do was tell those suppliers overseas that 
put the 10% on and send the money through to the government. Nothing. Very simple. That's all it was. Productivity Commission came in at the time. They came in to see me, five or six of them. I said, now, you're the Productivity Commission. Could you tell me who you are? I just want to know who I'm talking to. So they went through who they were, and I thought, oh, dear, this is sad. So I spent about 20 minutes with them. They'd already made up their mind. And, and I thought, it's nice meeting you, see you. And a year or two later, they put a book out this thick. It was the Product Commission Report. I got it and I thought, you beauty, straight in the garbage. <laughs> right? I didn't even open front page. And they concluded, in short, that it was much more expensive to collect it than what you would get. 100% idiots. They're the product, and they would have been paid a fortune to write that book. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right? And you think to yourself, they wrote that, they actually believed it. So you barely consulted. Well, it was, didn't matter what I said, they'd made up their mind. So when people have made up their mind, sometimes it's very difficult. And especially when they know the public, the public, as they saw it, was on their side. So they're going to give a report to the government, the government's going to like, the report's really nice, it tells you it's too hard. Right? So they're not going to go out there and tell the truth. Maybe they don't know the truth. The problem is that it took 10 years to do something that should have been done overnight and it cost Australia some billions of dollars unnecessarily, sent a lot of people out of business that shouldn't have gone out of business. Totally destructive. And yet we had politicians in both parties that didn't fix that for 10 years. Unbelievable. Jerry, succession planning. Must well, it comes up all the time. I know. But when you're going to live to be 100, I haven't got to look forward to it for a while. So um, I've had my... Um, but what are you going to do, Jerry? I've had my medical. I'm going to, I'm going to die in the chair. Are you serious? Yeah, sure. So, because I can't think of anything better to do. I've travelled the world plenty of times. I don't want a plane. Um, I don't want a boat. I've had all those things. I haven't had a plane. I've had boats. Um, and I'm very happy doing what I'm doing, building my business. I get a charge out of it. Now, what am I going to do? And I do play golf and I play tennis. I have my medical. I'm in the top 5% of people for my age, physically. Uh, mentally, I'm probably there too. So better not test that one. <laughs> um, so I'm in a good spot. So I think to myself, can I, I'm 80. Can I do it at 90? There are others doing it. Yeah, yeah. Right? So the other day I was in, I was in Holland and I met this bloke. I said, gee, you're looking good. And Kate said, he's got good legs. <laughs> I said, mate, how old are you? He said, 92. I said, oh, hmm. what do you eat? What do you exercise? He said, I'll do a bit of exercise, walk a bit. What about eating? Steak, potatoes, two pounds of sugar a week. I said, that's not possible, mate. He said, that's what I have. And then his wife said, that's what he has. I said, oh, um, you ever heard of vegetables? Never touch one. What about fruit? Never. I said, so you have steak, potatoes <laughs> and two pounds of sugar a week and that's what you've lived in your 92. He said, yes. Are you going to change? No. So Works for him. It works for him. Now, that's him. there's not a person in the world that would put live like that. And so he's a, he's a, he's a freak. Mm. I said to him, mate, you're a freak. And, and I've never heard of anybody, but he is physically great. And he only recently got married. 
He was introduced to his wife. Well, first time. No, 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 second time. <laughs> second time for her too. So I said, how did that happen? He said, well, we were introduced and we decided that we liked each other. So he said, one day he said, I'll surprise her. So he said, I took her for a drive and I pulled up at a little park and she said, what do you think you're doing? He said, hang on a second. And he went to the boot and he pulled out a little table and two chairs and he got a picnic lunch for her. And he set it all up in the park and she said, oh, that's very romantic. That's very romantic. So she said, from that day on, I've stuck with him. Right? So here you go. You can even have love in your 80s and 90s. All you've got to do is have a little picnic table in the boot right? and have the girl happy to, you know, very romantic. How do you manage your time? Like you said, you're 80 years old now. You, we're going to have to carry you out according to you. Yes. So, you know, like you said, you've got your investments. We, talk, we started at the beginning of the show. Investments in farms like cucumbers, you've got the horses, etc. I've got uh, lots of... My day is better than anyone else's day. Because what, time, I, what time do you get out of bed? Between 6 and 6.30. Yeah. So this morning, for instance, I got up at 6. I read the papers, did the form, went down the garden for an hour because I grow all my own fruit and vegetables yeah. and all that sort of thing, yeah. So I've picked my vegetables for tonight. And, and so nobody's going to eat better tonight than me because I've got my... You know, I've got a, a mixture of uh, spinach and and, um, and broccoli and asparagus and some other Chinese, uh, Japanese stir-fried type vegetables, freshly picked this morning. It uh, doesn't matter what restaurant I go to, you can't beat that, <laughs> right? And so um, um, every day I've got something out of my... Oh, and I had some peas this morning, of course I'm growing all my peas. So in the morning you go down there and you have your nice fresh... But no good taking them up for dinner tonight. They're much nicer in the morning. You eat them, you know, after after breakfast, little snack. Oh, right. So um, now I've got my fruit trees. So I picked an orange and had my orange lunchtime today. But an orange off the tree today is twice as good as the orange you're going to buy in the shop. So to me... Um, you know, I love my garden. Right? So then I come to work and I do some of my horse stuff and then I do some Harvey Norman stuff and then I'm talking to my stockbroker. So, you know, I've got, I've got all my cattle farms and my horse farms. I've got my cucumber farms. I've got all my property developments. Uh, and they all for the trading mentality or they actually for something else? No, it's all business. Yep. It's all business. And, 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 and uh, I'm involved in lots of different public companies where, you know, I've got shares in 30, 40, 50 different public companies all the time. So I go through their businesses a bit, see whether I should own that or that or sell that or buy that. Um, and you get a bit of a charge when you, there was one there, I had lunch with the bloke yesterday, I put 10 million into his company and 18 months later it turned into 20. So from, I bought him lunch, it cost me 50 bucks. <laughs> I took him to a cheap place, but he was still happy. And he was happy when I put the ten million in. He needed it, and and so now it turned into twenty in a year and a half. So he's one of my best mates now, and he's a bloody good property developer. So it's a company called Centuria. Oh yeah, yeah, I need to know. Yeah. So if you look at Centuria, I bought in at a dollar, then a dollar twenty-eight. Then they had a raising the other day at two dollars ten, and the share prices were. I got to two twenty-five the other day, so it might be a bit lower now, but. It, Whatever I've put in, I've, I've in fact I've more than doubled my money because I didn't, on, on the share price I've doubled my money, but I've made money on the on the dividends as well. 
So yeah, at the right. moment, yeah, right. that $10 million is returning me a $1 million a year in dividends. Okay. So, and the share price has doubled, doubled, so that's a good deal. So I've got lots of those sort of things I do. And then in property development, I do all the property development in Harvey Norman. So do you really? Yeah, I'm the head of property. So every property deal in Harvey Norman has to get my okay. So we've got properties all over the world. Um, we own all our properties, for instance, in Slovenia. And, um, and, and so every property, we have a property meeting once a month all day. Then we went into mining camps and went really well. Then it crashed and then we got, you know, belted for going into mining camps. But at the moment it's all picking up again and I've got 3,000 beds, dongers they call them. Yeah. So I think that I'll have a lot of those out within the next few months. So I'm back in the, you know, it's back in the business again. But it's cyclical. But the, the analysts attacked because they said you shouldn't be in mining camps. I said it's like property. It's I'm doing something. It's in the property division. Then I made a bad mistake and... Lost a heap of money in a dairy, so they really punished me for that. But at the time, I thought, everyone's running around with a cappuccino, right? Everyone, all across the world. 100%. Milk, milk, milk. Got to get into milk. So I got into milk. Bad mistake. So, but, but we didn't do anything wrong. We just got in with the wrong bloke. So we, we ended up getting in with a bloke we thought was wonderful that wasn't wonderful. So... When we figured out it was all bad, cut your losses and run. We did. In the big picture, it makes no difference. But, but it becomes ammunition for the, for the people that want to attack. It's, oh, I've got a bit of ammunition. They never write anything about you. So they only ever attack you when they get in a chance, but they never give you any credit for ever doing anything right. So everything I've done in life is a disaster. I've never done anything any good. I've said to people, you know, if you want to go out in life and attack everyone, really attack them, sooner or later, it's going to come and grab you. So you've got a limited life. You've had much fear. Fear of what? Well, that's the question I'm asking. Where, where, did, all the, where did all the confidence come from? Well, I've always been fairly confident. Um, I, um, if you're talking about fear, if I was... Uh, a Christian in with a heap of lions in the Roman times, I'd have a lot of fear. Uh, but fear in terms of where we live in Australia and what we did, fear of what? I mean, we live in a, in a wonderful country. Uh, our lifestyle's as good or better than any time in human history. We're living a lot longer. We've got a lifestyle that's far superior to our grandparents'. When you look back at your grandparents and look at their life and what they did and you think, wow, they never even left the town they lived in in a lot of cases. They didn't have a refrigerator or a washing machine. A TV didn't exist. There was no such thing as air conditioning. There were no motor cars. I mean, when you look at their life, they had a very simple life. We've now, we're now in a position where we have this wonderful life and we don't appreciate it and, and not to the degree we should. And what about if you, you or I had ended up as a 19-year-old in the First or Second World War right. where they killed thousands of us every day? Right. And you look at that and you go and look at those graves and you think to yourself, 
You know, I've got nothing to complain about. Why would I have any fear? I've just lived the, I lived the best life anyone could ever live. We all do. And yet we whinge and complain as if we're having a bad time. Do you think Australians back themselves enough? Back themselves? Australians are some of the world's greatest whingers. We're, we're, a, we're a nation of whingers. We love whinging. And, and so I'm one a bit myself, I, I, but it's the culture. So it's like, you know, but then when you go home and have a good look at yourself in the mirror, you think, what the frig am I going on about, you know? Life's pretty bloody good, well, you know, I should wake up to myself. So, Or you've got a wife that tells you to wake up to yourself better still. Or your kids, maybe, you know? So you bring up kids in today's world, there's never been a better world for kids than what they've got today. The only problem is that, you know, we've got half of our kids that are overweight. And when I went to school, there was no kids overweight. It was like you never saw a fat kid. And, and, but today, half the kids are overweight because the parents don't look after their kids. And you go in, you best thing, walk into a shop, and I feel like going up to the cart and pulling three quarters of stuff out and putting it on the shelf. It's all shit. When we brought our kids up, there was never a soft drink in the house. It was only water. And so they never missed the soft drink. And, and, a soft drink's got 10 or 11 teaspoons of sugar in every one of them. And so now, here they are, 29 and 26, and they drink water still. They're very happy with water. They don't want a lemonade or a Coke or something like that. So why do people buy? Then they buy all this, this terrible food, takeaway food and crap. And, and you, you can't feed your kids like this. So why are people so irresponsible with their kids. They must know. So you see mum and dad, both huge, four little kids, all huge, the six of them toddling around together and you think, oh no. They could live to 150 but they're all going to have heart disease and die halfway through. You can't believe that people are this stupid. Then they get up there as parents and start telling you how good they are as parents and things like that. They're not. They're terrible. They've got to wake up to themselves and and take more care of their kids. Jerry, if you were to look at that young 17-year-old who left the bush and went to university in Sydney, what advice would you give him now? Well, I'd say you're 17, you've got your whole life ahead of you and you can have a wonderful life or you can do a lot of silly things and have a terrible life. So I'd look around and I'd look at the people I think that I want to be and I'd associate with the people that that I think will help take me to somewhere. And, and all young people I talk to today, I say the most important thing you can do is to work with people that you really think are good. And you've got to pick up from each one of those people. So I've got, here I say to people, there is nothing more important than who you work with. So when you grow up, you've got mum and dad, then you've got the school teacher, then you go to work and it's the people you work with. If you're lucky enough to have a good mum and dad, if you're lucky enough to have a good school teacher and you work with the right people, right, you're giving yourself a real big chance. Mum and dad are no good, the school teachers are no good and you work with dills, mate, there's a good chance you're going to end up being a dill. So it's pretty simple. I, I mean, I worked that out when I was 17. So if people are 37 or 47 and haven't worked it out... They can't be that dumb. It's not that hard. So, you know, you've got the world in front of you. You've got this huge future. 
if you want to take advantage of it. Jerry, on that, I really, really appreciate your time today. It's been a terrific show. Thank you. You've been listening to No Limitations. <laughs>